Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. It's kind of weird, Paul, isn't it, that we, at the same time, we make death, we would, we would mistake death for a reality, we also obscure it, like almost in the simultaneous, as a simultaneous movement. Yeah, I, and I assume those things just usually go hand in hand. That sort of Freud's point, there is no death, there is no mortality in the unconscious. If you think of the two the statements, God says, God identifies himself as I am. I am that I am. God can say that, no problem. But when human beings say, when, you know, this is the king of Tyre says, I am and there are none besides me, that's Satan. I mean, that's representative of, of a satanic utterance. But the I am is also, I think, what arises with Adam. I ran, I hid, I was naked and afraid. And so the I, this is recur in a sense. What gives rise to the I as a speech act? I think that at the same time, what we should also be looking for is what's repressed. And that's what we're talking about that what's repressed, what we almost do not have access to, at least in, our, in the frame of our of understanding, is death, is mortality, which sounds kind of silly because at some level, of course, we have access to that. We all know that's there. But I think in our human subjectivity, in culture, in fact, we would do what God does. We would not factor in death as a reality. So death is a, it's turned into life in some way. I just noticed, Paul, in, in Genesis 4, for the first time I think that any human being, it's actually Cain, you know, he asks, he says, am I? Am I my brother's keeper? Uh. I did it. I looked in John, too. I am. You know, you have John the Baptist. I'm just going to, off the top of my head, you know, he says, like, I am not the Messiah. And if you, you know what I mean? There's other people saying, you know, I am not. I heard, you know, preachers, a black preacher, you know, he said, God is the only one that can say I am and put a period on it. You know. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. the rest of us have to say I am Matt or I am good or I am bad or I am this or I am that. You know, it's like it's all predicated upon something else. Our identity has to, it needs a predicate, quite literally, right? Like we need a predicate mm-hmm. to identify ourselves. And of course, usually that predicate doesn't really mean too much if you really dig down, you know, pretty uh, deep enough into it. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting thing, man, because what we're ultimately, I think, at the end of the day talking about is who has being, you know, we can imagine that we have being, how, uh, right? But God's the only one who can say, well, I am. I am, you know, that I am. He has being in and of himself, and we have to derive our being from somewhere else. But we would usually do it. We would just say, say like, I think, therefore, I am. Or I, you know, we would do something to get it up and running, but we would do it through the medium of, of the symbolic or of, of the linguistic, you know, realm, uh, some sort of derived. It could just be an imaginary thing. I, mean, I am a cowboy. I am an American. I am Japanese. I think they all serve the same purpose. And I guess the, uh, the practical implication to the part that you're pressing through in this course is that that I am becomes I am in Christ. That is what we're aiming for, heading for. I think that we can make this thing very practical. Paul says that it's no longer I that live, but it's Christ that lives within me, that I have been crucified. And so this thing is subject to being deconstructed. I presume the way that it's deconstructed is through just the practical participation in the body of Christ, that in some way we're opened 
to identity, a corporate identity that is the gifts of the Spirit, that is the friendship and the fellowship that opens us to other people. And I think that as this takes place, you know, as long as I am, I think that gives rise to all the violence, anger, jealousy, rage, desire. Think about the way that what we do to other people. I, I just think that sin, in some way, is always an exercise in which we then establish ourselves over and against the other. I mean, this is obvious in the way that people do leadership badly. You know, they just lord it over others. And they're doing that because in some way it's empowering. And if they can use religion in it, the Nazis is always the, the illustration here because it's just so extreme, but I think the Nazis are just a case in point, that they enjoyed their enforcement of the law. Because what being a Nazi did, they were using, it was all legal. It was all authorized. And through authorization, they could do whatever they wanted to their fellow human beings. And there's an especial pleasure, I think, to be had through the law, through religion, in its oppression and destruction of other people. Sex will do the same thing for us. Oh, it can be a form of manipulation of the other obtaining the other gain, you know, we literally, and I don't want to get you off track and I want you to keep going cause it's really good. But I, I did want to say that what I thought was one of the coolest things. And I don't even think that I really realized this and I edited, you know, your book and I read the chapter, you know, however many times, but it struck me when I read it this morning, you said the I, the ego, it's not even saved. The ego is not what's being saved. The I is not what's being saved. It's actually being destroyed. If I'm understanding what you're saying right, it's actually being dissolved or done away with. It's not. So you would imagine the, then, right? Or like I, I, I would imagine that, well, no, the I, the real me or, or whatever, is be that's what's being saved. It's being redeemed or whatever. But I think you're saying something very different, and I hope that it's relating to what you were just saying before. And that is, is that, no, actually the I is just being crucified. It really is being put to death. It really is being dissolved or annulled. Uh, and something new is emerging. The eye is actually what's obscuring, you know, that thing that takes pleasure and power or in, you know, sort of lording sex or just whatever the thing is. It's like we do it in a myriad of different ways. But and what you're saying is, is that there's really nothing there to redeem. I think that's what you're saying is, well, that's evil. That's sin. It's not that you can pull something out of that. It's that you got to just crucify it, annul it, put it to death so that, the re in Zizek's term, you know, the real, uh, which would normally be death. I don't know how you would want to say it, you know, teleologically suspended or displaced or whatever by you in that, you would put uh, the resurrection, I would think, right? In that mm -hmm. place. Yeah. I mean, that's a profound thing. I think most people think that what Christ is saving is their ego, you know, the personality that's that's me. It's like, it just struck me as a profound point that actually, no, that's the thing that call, Christ is calling us to die. That's the part of us that has to go. <laughs> yeah, and I think it can have a, I mean, I think it has a practical ramification, is that in our misidentification of who we are, what we are, we may assign primary importance to what's happening in a head. And so we whole, have a whole religion that's aimed at our interior, the manipulation of thought, accepting Christ into the heart. And so the whole thing is, is a kind of mental movement, because the very nature of Western individualism is that we 
assign prime reality to that individualism. But I think that understanding is itself neurotic. It's already giving rise to a neurotic person. And this neurosis will kill you. I mean, people go to insane asylums because they cannot rid themselves of the compulsion to gain control of themselves, to gain control of their thoughts. They compulsively repeat, this is Freud, but isn't this the New Testament? That the dog returns to its vomit, the pig returns to its wallow. That we compulsively repeat in the effort to gain control, and it kills us. In other words, that thing, that attempt at salvation, human salvation systems are what Christ saves us from. He who would save his life shall lose it, and he who would lose his life for my sake in the gospel shall find it. That means that the obliteration of human desire you know, for life, human religion, that the impetus behind the whole thing is precisely what's destroying us and what we're delivered from in Christ. I mean, at some level, that's just obvious that people in various forms, whether in their addiction, in their patriotism, what's killing everybody, whether literally or metaphorically, I I think that we've described it. And so I think that's the movement in Romans chapter 7, that what Paul is describing is clearly a commentary on Genesis. Paul puts sin in place of the serpent, and so the sin does, the sin, it, it colonizes his body. The sin is animating him. I think Paul's giving us a commentary on Genesis that we can all read and recognize. Let me say something that may be disturbing. I know, Matt, you've, you've often gone back to chapter 7, and you said, yeah, but this is my experience. And of course, I think it is Paul's retrospective view of his, as what, and, and he's recognizing something about the human condition that in the midst of that condition, he did not recognize. But isn't there something that when we do recognize this thing, it's almost like there's the danger of being caught back up in it in a almost confounded worse position than being oblivious to it. The Paul of Romans 7, he ain't happy. But the Pharisaical Jew Paul, who in all good conscience was arresting and probably having Christians executed, I think he was pretty happy. In other words, what I'm saying is there may be a movement in Christianity, in its impetus, in its exposure, from happiness to unhappiness. That is disturbing. That's why I said I said from happiness to yeah, unhappiness. Yeah. <laughs> In other words, being happy may not be such a happy estate. Being a clear conscience. I think Adolf Eichmann had a clear conscience. And I must be doing really, really well spiritually because I just walk in constant, you know, guilt and shame. So what's doing great? <laughs> sadness. Sadness despair. I think that retrospectively, Paul really does have access to, it's a desperate, you know, it's what Kierkegaard just describes as despair, that Paul couldn't, he couldn't give you Romans 7 back before he knew Christ. Yeah. Now, what I'm not doing, and this this enters in, I don't know if you're reading the footnotes or reading the words even, but in the literature, there's a big argument about the, you know, is Paul 
suffering from a guilty conscience. You know, is Paul Luther? I did the, the thing on there. The problem is not the guilt-stricken conscience. That's not Paul, and that's not Romans 7. Romans 7 is describing something that Paul, as a Pharisee, would have been unconscious of. And this is there even in the, the verse that what is being described, the movement, is unconscious, that we're dealing with an un, a, a thing that even in the Greek is describing something that escapes understanding. Paul doesn't understand what he's doing. And so it is a reference. That's the, the significance here. We have the positing of the unconscious. The unconscious exposed. What is the point of Christianity? Well, if the problem of sin is primarily a deception, a lie, then the point is the, the exposure of the deception, a revealing of the unconscious, so that revelation is aimed not at our conscious understanding, but in fact our unconscious desire so that what is exposed to us in Christ is otherwise not available to us. It's not on a continuum with our usual understanding, but it's entry into that which we could not otherwise have glimpsed. Kind of like how Christ says, the truth will set you free, and you'll know what your forbidden desires are, because the truth now reveals what those are previously you did not know. Yeah. Truth sets us free from what and what truth? Well, the truth of Christ exposes the lie of sin. Christ is not the truth that water is H2O. Christ is not the truth. You know, we could say many things that are factual and true. But when Christ says the truth will set you free, he is being specific to the human condition that binds us, that enslaves us. Guys, we're going to have to do a whole class just on Romans 8, right? We're not yeah, this is just seven. We didn't. We haven't gotten to eight. Well, we didn't do six last week. I don't think. Oh, terrible! We're <laughs> skipping all the good parts. Anything that's positive, we just skip over. <laughs> that's what Christianity Christianity's all about. The negative, right? All about the bad stuff. Hankel did say we have to tarry with the negative. <laughs> <laughs> It's wonderful, Paul, the stuff you're saying. It's kind of just so much food for thought. And I think a lot of it, you know, you kind of orbit around so many of this, you know, it, it's all there. But you have to hear it 15 times before it finally sets in, before it sinks in. And so I'm, I'm mesmerized by uh, some of what you're saying and just, again, trying to take it on board. It's not just more words and more cognitive uh, activity. Very challenging. Because, of course, I, I it, you know, my thing is I'm always trying to relate it to Jesus. I'm always asking the question of, you know, what is it specifically that Christ did? Because he did a lot more before he died. I mean, sorry, he did a lot before he died and rose from the dead. There's that whole life and, you know, just his, his observations of the human condition and yeah. the way he says things is staggering. Once you put this reading into place, that's what we did, you know, doing the Gospel of John. You go back then, you have this, this is the understanding that's being worked out. And then his conversations with people, you know, in John and other the other Gospels, the Sermon on the Mount. I think they take on a, in other words, there's a specificity to the hermeneutic 
that is given to us in Christ being worked out in his life and teaching that directly relates then to this conversation. So, you know, we talked about that ego, you know, killing it. What does Christ redeem then? Is he the soul? I mean, I'm just, I'm, you know, because we talked about that ego, that thing is the thing that's destroying and uh, preventing us from being, you know, the fullness of God. You know, that's, we were creating this image. We want to have, we want to be as like God as much as possible. So once that thing is crucified, we don't get a new, obviously get a new life, but what is God changing, I guess? I think it's actually a really great question. I mean, where are we, you know, if, so if we're in the, you know, in the three registers that Paul is dealing with in this book, you know, it's like, okay, so where's Matt? Is he in the ego? Is he in the symbolic? Is he in the, you know, is he in the, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm in Freud's terms or whatever, Lacan's or Tuchet's terms, I guess I'm, I'm right in the middle of all that somewhere. So it's actually a good question. I mean, I guess that I would say that, well, Paul, I mean, you're the one who needs to answer it, right? But I do think that what you're saying is, is that if the ego is a construct, if it's a fiction, then what really does have to arise is the real, but not the real in Zizek's sense, but the child of God. Whatever we are. But he's asking what's being redeemed. I guess what's being yeah. redeemed is your life, you know, is what's being redeemed or bought. Redemption is just like that manumit, you know, I think the heart translates it manumission. It's the buying back. You know, it's just a way to talk about, I guess. I, I think it's, though, it, it's, it's about recognizing the lie and being set free from the lie and then living your life in a completely different way because now we know what the image of God is. It's the crucified one. That's the image I follow. I want to be, you know, that's where we, that's where we find our life. It's not to make us richer or happier or healthier. It's to make us be like Christ to live a, a self-giving, self, unself-serving life that is seeking to lose or, or, you know, what is it Michael Harden said? Climb down the ladder, climb down the ladder. It's a race to the bottom, baby. And I'm leading that pack. <laughs> As I like to say, you know, I, I started out with nothing and I still have most of it left. <laughs> <laughs> That's you, Paul. You're going, you got your way out in front. I I think I I'm I'm leading the pack in in <laughs> in climbing down. Yeah. I think I could just take my annual salary and prove the point. <laughs> you know that that's at the bottom of the ladder. That's where all the blood is. Yeah. <laughs> it's a race to the bottom. Race to the bottom, yeah. But I mean, I do think that Austin's point is a fair one. I mean, I, you know, we don't have to belabor too much, but it's like, I guess, you know, for me, some of my personality is still intact. I, I guess, like, the best parts of me or whatever, it's like I still kind of find similar things funny. I still like the same sorts of music, right? Like, so it's not like you're whatever those three categories are, like, completely and totally like obliterated. And maybe, you know, I don't know, Austin, maybe you're, you're just saying Paul's wrong, you know, that actually the ego is transformed. But, but maybe in its transformation, it becomes something other than, I think you have to say that, that, that whatever the ego is, you know, that it has to be transformed into something transfigured maybe is the better biblical image. Yeah, I'm just trying to picture if that ego, that's the thing that's what's killing us, what's driving us away from God, that wedge. Yeah. You know, once that thing is gone, where does that leave me in changing? I guess, what does that mean? Once the ego is gone, then I'm perfect? I'm good? 
I know, think I, mean, I think the ego is like death for God. It's nothing. It's inconsequential. It never amounted to anything. It is a, an imaginary construct. If you think of it in terms of an object, are we an object? Because the static ego is what's being pictured, I think, both by Paul. Think of the, the things that we see, the very nature of looking, and that's the way of apprehending ourselves. Are you something that you can apprehend by looking at? No. And well. so the, the notion, the deep notion that we have of ourselves is, oh, I'll just take a look in the mirror or the bodily image, or in some way we tie ourselves then to imagery, thus the imaginary. And so dispelling the imaginary, in fact, the eye that gets crucified, apparently it does no harm to anyone. No one dies. It's a construct, and it in no way affects who you are because who you are is a child of God. The, the dynamic of law the I is, in fact, a displacement that is undone when we cry out, Abba, Father. Then we recognize who we really are in Christ. And so I think what displaces that dynamic is the picture in chapter 6, chapter 8, that we die and we're raised again. The law of life and the Spirit has displaced the law of sin and death. It, you know, there's an argument here whether he's describing in Corinthians 15, the perishable puts on. What is the tense of that putting on? Is that simply an eschatological event? There is an argument that, in fact, it's a present event. That certainly accords with chapter 8 and chapter 6. I think it fits chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. And so that, that is who we are, that we begin to do that. Think of the Corinthians. You know, what was their problem? Well, they was going to prostitutes. The rich were lording it over the poor. One man was living with his father's wife. These are people that are attempting to grab all the gusto they can. And Paul is saying, don't you recognize who you are in Christ in the resurrection life? And so in a sense, we put to death, what's put to death with the ego is the idic grab, idic, you know, the id, the it, the unconscious desire. That, that is no longer the controlling factor about us. Some people are defined. Imagine they're defined. They themselves would define themselves through their desire. But I think where the I is, Christ shall be, does away, undoes desire as the life force definitive. I mean, it's really the death force in us. Oh, maybe the maybe the image of the the burning bush is uh, helpful, right? That you know you have the bush that's totally infused by God's logos. It's transfigured, but not destroyed. In other words, the bush is filled with the life of God. Uh, it's completely transfigured. It's transformed, but the bush itself isn't burned up. It's not. That's what it says in the story. Maybe that's how it is with. Uh, redemption, or whatever it is that we truly are. That is, that God's Logos fully infuses us, transforms us, transfigures us, consumes us, but we're not destroyed. It actually purifies us. It actually makes us more of what we were um, apart from His holy presence. 
Yeah, so do you think the Corinthians were less themselves if they stopped visiting prostitutes? Were they less themselves, you know, with a man living with his mother, if he would cease doing that? Would they cease being who they really are if they would cease mistreating the poor, getting drunk at communion, and gorging themselves? I think it comes down to that with each of us. Let's say tomorrow you decide to get a divorce. You know, somebody comes along in your congregation, and you call me up and say, well, you know, I, this is just the love of my life. My, my heart is just telling me to do this thing. Would you be more yourself or less yourself by keeping your commitments to your wife, your family, and to God? I think our tendency, I mean, privately, is to think, what, as Woody Allen said when he married his own daughter, adopted daughter, the heart wants what it wants. I think that we become not ourselves in pursuit of establishing the ego by not keeping our commitments, by not keeping our word, by not fulfilling our promise. So in a, in a way, this resurrection life, it may seem abstract and distant and you know, completely future, but I think the way that it comes home with each of us is in our practical lives and the, the, just the commitments that we keep, the truth that we speak, the, the relationships that we develop, the dross is being burned away, you know, Matt's imagery, in that manner of life. Maybe sometimes I'm too abstract. I think these are ideas that in the abstract, they give us a framework that become a very practical, concrete reality. You know, the seven and eight is key. I think to what you're doing and we we did mostly seven you know eight eight is is the linchpin i think is it not of, of what paul but but i don't want to i think eight is so you said that we could spend eight the rest of our lives talking about it, and we didn't talk about it in this class well we haven't got there we're enjoying the problem so much <laughs> our symptom enjoy your symptom <laughs> happy birthday all right thank you <laughs> I'm a, I, someone wheel me over to the window so that I can see. The <laughs> I got someone shooting fireworks off at my house, so they're probably celebrating your birthday right now. Yeah. Matt's a true born on the 4th of July son of Uncle Sam. That's right. I'm a true American. Yeah. All right. Talk to you guys. Okay. All right. Good night. So, have a blessed night, everyone. You too. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.